0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston Sports podcast. And if you're a first timer, welcome aboard Robert, along with my co-host, Stephen Kerr. And it's hard to believe, but when I started this show six years ago, the Astros were the laughing stock of baseball. There are just two players left from that team. Stephen, do you know who they
1: are? From the 2014, 2014- 2013. 2013- 13 2013 uh, 2013 squad Ooh um Jose Altuve would certainly be one
0: Yeah Altuve's one of them The, the crazy thing is uh the other guy Brad Peacock he's oh, that's uh, right. he's the other one and, and going into the next couple of months he might be way more important than Altuve because they need him so badly to be rolling going into the playoffs his career ERA is 3.99 his playoff ERA is 5.11. But, Stephen, man, we we know his potential is far greater than that.
1: Well, it, it is. And I remember when he first started pitching, the first few years he was pretty shaky. I mean, you really couldn't rely on him. Of course, you could say that about a lot of the Astros pitchers back in that day. Even Dallas Keuchel, when he came in, he had a bit of a shaky start, but uh, got better as his career went along. And with Peacock, he has certainly become a reliable pitcher. The big question now is... Can he come back from the, the problems he's had with his shoulder? And we're uh, certainly hoping so because, as you said, we're going to need him in the next six weeks, especially when the postseason comes.
0: We're going to get to the big story this week, which is uh, Correa, as you and I speak on, on Tuesday night. But uh, speaking of the bullpen, I want get, to get to them right off the bat because a lot of folks just biting their fingernails when Will Harris is on the mound, but he keeps trucking along with the – ERA this year, as you and I are talking, a 2.44 ERA in his five years in Houston. And all I got to say, Stephen,
1: to the haters on Will Harris, keep hating on him because it's working. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it because he's going out there and getting it done. I mean, he had a shaky year last year, but uh, this year has come back strong. So I certainly think, you know, whether you like it or not, I I think you're going to see him on the playoff roster. The playoffs
0: roughly six weeks away. So maybe it's too early to have this discussion. But Steven, I think we can almost lock in the 13 Astros hitters for the playoffs. I think we all know who they are. We know who the four starting pitchers are, the real puzzle, the bullpen. Barring injury anyway. Yeah. Oh, of course. That's always the case. But you got to lock down. Osuna and Presley, of course, in the bullpen. That leaves nine pitchers for six spots. So the question I have for you and I have for the listeners, and you can email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net and give us your two cents. You can disagree with us, uh, give us another angle. But here's here's how we're looking at it. Uh, Which four pitchers don't make the cut or which three pitchers don't make the cut here? And here are your candidates. Will Harris, Brad Peacock, Aaron Sanchez, Joe Smith, Hector Rondon, Colin McHugh, Josh James, Joe Biagini, and Chris Davinsky. Which three guys do you have not making the playoffs as of today?
1: As of today. Well, now you did give me a heads up with this question, but I haven't shared my answers with you. So you don't know any more than the listeners do. So, and I'd be interested to hear yours too. Well, I don't, I don't see Josh James making it at this point. I mean, he is hopefully going to come back in September, but there's just so much of a question mark of, is he going to be healthy and effective in time? So I'm leaving Josh James off. Joe Biagini is currently in the minor league, so I'm leaving him off because we we don't know what his future is. And I went back and forth on this uh, several times, but at least for the ALDS for the time being, I don't know that I have Colin McHugh making the roster either. Boy, that's interesting because the
0: one guy you didn't mention in there, which I think every Astro fan would have mentioned, and it's Chris Davinsky.
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, here's the thing about Chris Davinsky. He, he can go multiple innings. And I think, you know, with him and Peacock and Sanchez, you've got pitchers that could be middle relief. They They could pitch multiple innings if they need to. And he's pitched better of late. He's kind of gotten back on track. So providing that he stays that way, I think he will make the roster.
0: Not sure. I, I would say he's pitched really all that well recently. It's a little bit better, but it's not much. And and you look at the, the batting average against against him is it's very high. He's not a swing and miss typically. He's not getting lefties out the way he used to. Uh, early in his career, that changeup just isn't effective. I think his fastball isn't you know, it doesn't have the velocity that it used to, so that's been the problem. I don't give him a rose on this episode of The Bachelor. I leave uh, Davinsky off. Uh, Now, Aaron Sanchez has great stuff, but I don't trust his control in a tense playoff situation. So for me, he's out. Uh, The final one was difficult for me. It's actually a real battle in these last six weeks between Biagini and Colin McHugh to see who really has it rolling. Biagini is not on the major league roster right now because he's got Options and they decided to use those. I don't think it had to do with his ability compared to some of these other guys. So, you know, I have it between Biagini and McHugh, and McHugh's got the better stuff, but Biagini is pitching way, way better this year. I mean, if we're just going by this year, and that's what you got to go by who's hot, Who's, who's doing it this year. I'm going with Biagini. I disagree with you on Josh James. Even though, you know, we don't know what it, what he's going to be like, I think as long as he can, you know, get it going a little bit and get it close to the mile per hour marker that we're, we're used to with him. Uh, you know, early in the year, it looked like it, the speed wasn't there. Then, then it looked like his velocity had picked up. Uh, I, I guess it's just I'm predicting,
1: Stephen, that he's going to be ready to go. Well, and I certainly hope so because he has electric stuff, too. And he did. He he does have some experience in the postseason from last year, so it's not like he's coming in cold off of it. So I'm I'm rooting for Josh James. I'm just not sure that you know. As we say, as of today, I'm not putting him on the roster at this point. But if he comes back and he's effective, then he he definitely should be on there. We're gonna go over some more playoff intricacies, I'm sure, a, a, in the next few weeks
0: as as time gets closer and closer. But my next note is Correa's back. Oh, no, I read that wrong. It's uh... Correa's. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, Correa's back. In the, uh, it's all in the expression of tone, Robert. Oh, brother. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on with him?
1: Well, it did worry me at first. You know, when he he swung and missed, he struck out in the first inning on Monday night's game, and then all of a sudden he's out of the game. And I just, you know, you, you don't you don't pull your star shortstop out of the game in the second inning. I didn't really notice this at first, but apparently in the top of the first, when he went to field a ball, it seemed like his back kind of acted up because he wasn't able to get in the fielding position that he would normally get in. So I think that alerted A.J. Hinch that something was wrong. And then when he struck out, he just kind of waved at that pitch, and so they immediately took him out. They say back discomfort, but, Robert, here's what what worries me. And I know we've talked about this on the show before, but Correa's durability has been such a question mark. And when it comes to back problems – You know, for the average person, it's difficult. Now, these athletes are in shape. They're in better shape than most of us. But when your backstop starts acting up, especially with a player like Correa, who takes big swings, who dives on the ground, who's running and sliding, it just, you know, what worries me is, okay, you can put him on the 10-day IL, leave him off for a little bit. He can come back in September, play well. The postseason comes along and something happens where you have to take him out and you may not be able to play him for a few days or maybe even the rest of the post season. That's what scares me more than anything about this back business.
0: Yeah. 109 games in 2017, 110 last year. Uh, it's going to be roughly the same if he goes on the injured list this year. So, well, it, it would be worse actually, probably because he's already missed a, a bunch of games. He's got 72 games so far this season. So I brought up the idea of dealing him and I remember yep. I put something out there on Twitter and I kept seeing these people on Twitter, you know, when Korea got back, look, look what, you know, this is why you guys are idiots. You watching this guy, blah, blah, blah. And there were just people going after everybody like a, you know, machine gunning people on Twitter for wanting to trade Korea. It, it's not about today kids. It's about big picture. And this guy he's
1: got injury issues and look I've had back issues they don't go away Stephen well I think that if the Astros were going to trade Correa I would think it would be in the final season of his contract because here's the thing I if if he continues along this path of not being durable I don't see the Astros wanting to sign him to a Bregman or Altuve type contract I, I mean how could you But as far as trading him right now, I I don't know that they will. I I just don't see that on the horizon. And think about it, too. The other teams who are looking at it and making a possible trade, they're obviously going to look at his injury history. How much are you going to get for a player like Correa, who has such a question mark, if he continues to go down that road? So it's a difficult question. I I, I think if the Astros do trade him, it's going to be in the last season of his contract. I disagree. I think if they're going to tr- if they're going to get
0: anything of value, they're going to have to do it next year. It's going to have to be by the midway point of next season. Well, that's probably what they should do. I, I just don't see them being willing to do that yeah. quite so soon. Yeah, it's just – I mean, you know, let's we'll see what happens this year. You know, if he misses the rest of this year, th- then all bets might be off. Everything might be open. Uh, right. It's It's so tough to do because, you know, if you have him on a playoff roster – uh he's he's so incredible and the the big thing for me, Stephen, it's not even the offense, and the offense is as great as it is. That guy defensively the, the howitzer that he has, he rarely makes a mental mistake out there. I mean it, it's it's stuff that we see when we think of maybe a Derek Jeter where you know, he makes that relay. From halfway in the outfield, and he guns a guy out at the plate, or somebody out at third base, or what? It's it's just those little. And he's six foot four. He's got this incredible reach. There's so many times where I watch Altuve at second base. You know, God bless him, but he's like five foot six, and the ball just barely gets over his head, or just gets past him because he's not tall enough. But Correa, he's six four. He's got that long reach. You're like that's going to be the hardest part to to replace. I mean, it's different now because in baseball, a lot of times. You know, shortstop's not playing traditional shortstop. He's playing behind second base, or you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like maybe you need that great shortstop defensively because sometimes the third baseman's playing shortstop. But still, I mean, Correa. There's so many times where he saves you out there, and you know, I love Bregman, but you know, even though he was a shortstop, he just doesn't have the range or the ability, anything close to Correa. It's a, it's a, it's a deep drop off from from going to Correa to Bregman at at shortstop. And, you know, he, he would be, I guess the obvious one. And then you'd have to figure out a way to replace. It's easier to replace a third baseman. I think maybe than to replace a shortstop.
1: Well, I think that's why it is so frustrating, Robert. And maybe this is why it's such a polarizing topic, because when Correa is in there, he's certainly effective. And when he came back from the rib injury, we, we probably thought it was going to take him a while to get going. Well, no, he came out there and started bashing the ball. and, playing defense the way he normally does. But, you know, as I've always said, you can't contribute when you're not on the field. And if Carlos Correa is not on the field, it's almost like not having him on the team. So no matter how much potential or, you know, how much superstar power you have, you still have to be out there contributing. And there have been a lot of occasions this year, last year, the year before in the minor leagues, when he broke his leg, that he hasn't been on the field. And and I think... That's really the most frustrating thing is that when he is on the field, I mean, it would be easy if he just weren't contributing. Let's say he was Josh Reddick, and Josh Reddick is not hitting right now. It'd be easy to say, well, he hasn't been doing that well anyway, so what's the big deal? But with Carlos Correa, when he is on the field, he is productive, and he does help the team win. It's so frustrating because if you've been a longtime Astros fan, it's
0: so rare that they have even an above-average shortstop, and and the two times that they really had – Great shortstops, Correa, and of course, Dickie Thon. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't fun either. That that and that that was short lived too. Yeah, that was frustrating. I don't know. I mean, it's you know, it's really really frustrating because if you're an Astros fan uh, and you've you've got hopes of going to the World Series, you you need this team to be peaking come October and we just saw Correa not peaking in October last year and, and hurt and sort of limping to the finish. And, and it just, it didn't help. It didn't help you uh, when you needed it in the playoffs or they're, they're a better team this year. No, no question. But you know, not having Correa would be a, a big deal. Not having a, 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 even a 80% Correa would be a big deal if you could get them to 80 or 90%. But, you know, not on the field or, you know, if he's at 50% or something like that, it's just not, it's not okay.
1: Well, no matter who you have to replace him, there's no one even close to replacing what you're going to get with Correa. So we just have to hope that this is a short lived deal. I I would, I would almost rather, I I would feel better, Robert, if they would go ahead and put him on the 10 day D IL, just, just let him hang out, let him rest it as much as possible. The Astros still have a fairly good lead in the division So it's not like we need to have him back now. We just need to have him back in time to be ready for the postseason. And then you have to pray that it holds up during the postseason for him to be effective. I think we knocked around the Astros team MVP race not
0: too long ago. I noticed it was getting more chatter on the Astros telecast recently. So, Stephen, let's revisit this for just a bit. I think it's coming down to two Astros and one Astro that everybody brings up is not on my list anymore once I looked at one key stat. Alex Bregman is not in the stratosphere with Yuli and Michael Brantley because of his clutch stats. His OPS with runners in scoring position is 782. In our mind, Bregman is clutch, but on paper, he's not. Yuli's clutch OPS is 971, and Hmm. Brantley's is a ridiculous... 1,053 or 1,053, however you say that. Bottom line is, I've got Brantley over Uli unless something dramatic, you know, in the last few weeks happens. But that's that's where I'm looking at this going towards, especially because of his consistency.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the thing with Brantley that, that puts him over G- Guriel is his consistency. He is just such a great contact hitter. And he's been consistent from beginning to end. Now, make no mistake, Gurriel in the last couple of months has really turned it on. And you just you, you, it's hard. You can't get him out. Now, I know there may be some people that say, hey, you guys are totally off base. You've missed the whole point. It should be Jordan Alvarez. Well, you know, obviously, I, I think Jordan Alvarez is going to win Rookie of the Year in the AL, certainly. But I, I think you have to go through the entire season for an award like this. For an MVP type award, even for a team award, so I'm with you. I'd, I'd have to lean toward Brantley just barely over Guriel as far as the team MVP. Yeah, and Yordan's
0: clutch OPS—I looked those numbers up. It's it's about where he is as far as his regular OPS. It's around 1100. It seems recently like he hasn't been doing it, but he did it so much early on. It's it's kind of leveling off a little bit, uh, leveling off as an 1100 leveling off. But it just uh, he continues to do. Jordan, thinks I want to ask you a quick strategy question from Friday night's Astros A's game. Okay, let me set the scene on this. It, it was the eighth inning, game tied, two outs. Jordan smacks a double and is on second base. A.J. Hinch decides to pinch hit Jake Marisnik. Did you agree with that? I actually did
1: not see Friday night's. Who did he pinch hit for? Not pinch hits. I'm sorry. Pinch runs. Oh, he pinch ran Jake Jake. Mariznyk. I'm sorry. Yeah, pinch run. Yeah. Oh, I got you. Yeah, I'm always a little squeamish when he takes Jordan Alvarez out. I understand the concept. I do. And this is probably where Jordan Alvarez is lacking. I mean, if he were a better fielder, he would still be out there. But, you know, in a close game like that, you got to have your best hitters in there, don't you? I don't understand. like, Because A.J. Hinch after the game just says,
0: well, it was an obvious decision. I mean, it's it's the eighth inning, and that's the winning run, and, you know, you got Jake Marisnik who's a speedster. But the, the problem with that I have with it was it, it'd be different if there was nobody out or there's one out, and Marisnik moves up and you know Marisnyk might be able to move up an extra base on a on a ball that's like you know gets away from the catcher a little bit or you know a, a, a sock fly that might might not you know might not be able to uh, that might not be something that Jordan can get over to third on, and then and you're giving two or three chances for that base hit. Also, they could get Mariznick in for sec- from second base. But, you know, it's one shot. You know, it's Correa needs a base hit. And if he doesn't get a base hit, then boom, it's over with. And now the odds are, if you don't get that run, it's like very likely you're going to go to extra innings. I mean, you got to hold him uh, for a couple more innings right there. But it's, it's very likely that you're going to go to extra innings and Jordan's going to come up again. And that that's what happened. A couple more, a couple innings later, you know, a couple runners on and, and that spot in the order comes up and he ends up having to pinch hit Mariznick for Diaz. And I don't know why he pinched it. I don't even understand that move either because Mariznick has been hitting fine recently. I mean, he's been doing Mariznick stuff, but Diaz has not been playing well. And Diaz, that's another issue. He's He's got, you know, he's got on the injured list now with, Uh, kind of something that we we have no idea what's going on there. But I just, I I, I didn't understand it. I I would say if there was one out or or no outs, I I think there's more of an argument. It's just, it's so tough to take Jordan out when it potentially can get into extra innings. And it's like, you know, it it allows you to pitch around Bregman when he gets up. And and so it almost takes away two hitters in, in a way when Jordan's out of the game.
1: I don't question too many decisions that A.J. Hinch makes. I think overall he's a great game manager. I, I just I, I would have understood if it had been, say, Robinson Chirinos or Martin Maldonado that he was pinch running for at, at second base. But, you know, when it's one of your best hitters in the late innings in a tie game, yeah, I have to question that you, you want to take out someone like a Jordan Alvarez who could come up in the ninth, the 10th, the 11th. I mean, once you take him out, he can't come back in. So, yeah, that was a bit of a head-scratcher. As I said, I didn't see the game, but just the way you laid it out to me. I don't know that I would have done that, at least not with Jordan. Anything else you got on the Astros? Well, the Pitching Whisperer is back, you know. Brent Strom is back to work, so uh, he rejoined the team. Uh, Actually, he'd been at Minute Maid Park while they were on the road, but he officially rejoined them on uh, Monday's game with the Detroit Tigers. So, good to have Stromy back. Definitely
0: an, a weird story. Last thing I had was just a bizarre. Uh, I don't know if you caught this. Former Astros closer Octavio Dotel oh, was yes, arrested that. as part of a drug trafficking investigation. Dotel and former big leaguer Luis Castillo are linked to a money laundering network involving Cesar Emilio Peralta, who was also accused of putting that hit
1: on David Ortiz. That's right. That's right. I remember when I when I saw that name Cesar Peralta I thought wait, why is that name familiar? Oh, he's he was linked to the David Ortiz shooting. Yeah, and here's what I don't understand. Octavio Dotel made bundles of money in his career. What what is he doing drug trafficking, drug running? I mean I I don't get that whole thing and by the way, the Luis Castillo that was arrested, not the one that's currently playing now. It's the former Major League player, I believe. So, yeah, that definitely caught me by surprise uh, when I saw that. It's uh, certainly an unfortunate thing and uh, definitely caught me off guard. I had no idea that he was—I I, I don't know, Robert, unless you can think of an instance. I can't think of a time that Octavio Dotel was involved in drugs when he played the game, at least that, that we knew publicly.
0: Yeah, I could have been in other sorts of drugs, uh, steroids, yeah. or something like that. But could have been, yeah, yeah. If, if, it wasn't when he was with the Astros for sure. I, I I didn't follow him super closely. I don't remember much beyond the Astros. Which you know, here's a interesting little tidbit for you. How many teams do you think he played for altogether?
1: I think at least four, wasn't it? Oh man, Oh, you're was you're it way more off. Than that? Oh my god, he played for thirteen teams. Did he really? Wow, I guess I'd forgotten about most of them. I knew it was multiple after he left the Astros certainly and even before that. Yeah, he played 5 years for the Astros, which was by
0: far the most cuz he didn't play for any other team more than 2 years. I didn't realize right. that until I was looking it up today. I was like,
1: Whoa. "Whoa. That's interesting. I'd forgotten about that."
0: All right, let's uh let's go over to the Texans. Uh they they are uh going towards the final big preseason game, I guess, where where we might actually see some real players play. Of course, you know, for most of this preseason, it's like we we haven't seen too many of the big guys play at all. But you know, kind of what what caught your ear from our Texans post game show, Stephen.
1: Well, um, I, and by the way, it was a great show with uh, you, Sean Bajani, and uh, Brian. Um, I agreed with what Sean said about the preseason being boring. You know, when when the NFL started talking about an eighteen game regular season, cutting back to two preseason games, I I wasn't all too keen about it at first, but I tell you, as time has gone by, I've just, I've begun to warm up to it because the starters don't play much, if at all. The fans get charged, you know, buku money to see the scrubs. So why don't we just play two games, see who's going to make the roster and then let's play for real because this is just crazy. Now against the Cowboys, you'll probably see the starters a little bit more, but then you've got the Rams game where you're not going to see any of them. In fact, you're you're going to see third, fourth, fifth guys the whole game. So, I, I just don't understand this whole thing. Um, why we keep playing four preseason games, and you're lucky if you get to see the stars in even half of a game. Either that, or set up preseason like you set
0: up these scrimmages, because the, the coaches love to play everybody during a scrimmage. And you know, I don't care. I think the fans would be would think it was cool to see. Oh, well, let's see, coach you know, being out there, coaches being out there on the field and and just like, it doesn't matter. I mean, all you want to see, all
1: you care about is oh, there's J.J. Watt. I actually get to see him play, you know, that sort of stuff. Well, that's why I'm saying the fans come out to the practices. They don't charge for them usually, so they get to see them out there then. So yeah, why not do more of the scrimmages or the joint practices and less of the preseason games? I mean, in college football, they just have team scrimmages. They don't There's no preseason in college football. They just go out and play uh, August 31st or September 7th or whatever. So, yeah, I would like to see more of the joint practices and less of the preseason games if you're not going to throw your starters out there anyway. We talked about Titus Howard leaving the field during the
0: last preseason game. Turns out he has a broken pinky finger. They say it's not going to limit him a lot. I I hate to see that because... I want to see what he can do in, in full strength, and I want to see what he can do as he gets more playing time at guard and tackle, and we're not going to probably get to see him this week. I would assume he hasn't been uh, practicing the last couple of days from what I heard. Now, even more important, Matt Khalil hasn't practiced since the middle of last week. And, Stephen, I don't know if you heard Bill O'Brien.
1: He got a little bit pissy today as we're yes, talking he on Tuesday. Did. He sure did. He did with, uh, I think, Chronicle beat writer Aaron Wilson during the uh, media availability on Tuesday. He asked Bill O'Brien whether Matt Kalia was hurt. And O'Brien's response was, quote, is he hurt? I don't have to release an injury report until the season starts. And every time I come up here, I get asked about 50 questions about injuries. So you'll get an injury report when the season starts. Right now, I'll tell you, he's out of practice per the head coach's discretion. How's that for an answer? Good end of quote my my did he not have his breakfast this morning or what i mean it, it just felt like a perfect example of of why people
0: don't like the guy cuz he just doesn't come across as very friendly he gets upset at some basic questions from reporters and i mean he loses his cool and, and that's the thing he loses his cool okay and in, in, in a minor situation and I mean, I, I get it. These NFL coaches are always temperamental or whatever, but you know what? I want to see a coach that keeps his cool with reporters. Cause then maybe he'll keep his cool in big situations and games. You worry about a guy like that. Well, if you can't keep your cool with a, with the stupid reporter question, that's like a real obvious question, by the way, Matt Khalil, it's not just anybody. That's your second most po- important player. He's the guy that's, He's the protection for Deshaun Watson. Your number one most important player, the number one one A one B one C one D most important player is Deshaun Watson, and Matt Khalil is now the guy in charge uh, of protecting him in a revolving left tackle situation over the last couple of years. That's a big deal. I mean, that we should be mad about that. <laughs> not you know we should be mad about not knowing what's going on because look, it's offensive line. This isn't wide receiver. It's not linebacker. You got to be out there. You got to develop. Chemistry is the most important part of an offensive line. It's the most important part.
1: Well, it's not a stupid question that Aaron asked because O'Brien all but announced the other day, if you recall, that Matt Khalil was going to be the starting left tackle. Well, he hasn't practiced in several days. So, A, why is he not out there practicing? And B, why so defensive? If he'd addressed the question directly the first time it was asked, you know, even if it's to say I'm not at liberty to discuss it right now, I'll have to get back to you on it. Then you you wouldn't have to get huffy. And if you, you know, if if the reporters are going to ask the press question repeatedly, then you have a right to get huffy. But if if he hasn't been out there practicing, and nobody is saying anything, then there's no reason for him to get testing when the questions asked. And if I, I keep hearing out there he wants to be the next Bill Belichick, do you think Bill Belichick would have handled it that way? Bill Belichick would have just brushed it off. He he has a way of brushing reporters off that it, it's almost comical to listen to. But Bill O'Brien doesn't know how to do that. And you may have hit upon something, Robert. If, if he can't keep his cool in a press conference or media availability after practice, maybe that's why he's screwed up so much as a game manager he t- under the pressure. I don't know. But it, it's a mystery.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating to me. And until he proves otherwise, that's a perfect example of why fans don't like him, why I don't particularly like him. You know, you don't have to be a jerk. AJ Hinch, look, he's, if not the best manager in Major League Baseball right now, he's in the top three or five, you know, with a strategy strategy from earlier in the show behi- behind me. Uh, still, guy, guy's great at what he does. We know how Bill Belichick is, like you said. you You can do this, not saying Bill Belichick is the nice guy or anything like that, but just... It's a it's a matter of being a little bit more professional than O'Brien tends to be at times. And, you know, I just don't I don't think you need
1: to be a jerk to be good. I mean, I'm sorry. You I don't agree. Be, you
0: don't have to be Bill yeah. Parcells. I mean, you don't have no, to be some or, or Nick of Saban,
1: guys. even Nick Saban. I mean, you think about it, Nick Saban goes off on reporters, too. But guess what? How many championships has Nick Saban won? How many championships has Bill O'Brien won? There's your difference.
0: Yeah, and I, my, my, me personally, I don't think it gives you the right to be a jerk because you you're winning, you know, championships. But I just, I, I certainly think that that plays a part in why you know you're you're not going to get the respect from anybody until a you win you win something besides uh, getting into, into the playoffs with an AFC South championship, and and B, you know, you're not going to get any respect unless you kind of earn your respect with the reporters and with the fans and just the way you handle yourself. Yeah. It's just real frustrating.
1: Well, it's interesting that uh, Bill O'Brien seemed to have had a a totally different personality through the first couple, three weeks or so of training camp. I I think Tuesday is the first instance that I can think of where he's suddenly like a Rottweiler. He suddenly turned on you again. So yeah, I don't know, but this whole left tackle thing, I mean, it just, it brings up the question again, especially now that Titus Howard is hurt. And if Matt Khalil is either hurt or has been struggling in practice, which we know he has, you know, is it too late for the Texans to even make a trade to get a left tackle? I I think at this point probably is, even if if that's what they're trying to do. Let's
0: go glass half full for a second. Good news is uh, the big Jordan is back out on the field uh, and and playing well recently. Uh, So, uh, you know, the two Jordans at tight end are, are looking all right. Uh, Will Fuller is playing again this week. So offensively, you know, the offensive line, we're still, obviously it's going to be a question mark, but Lamar Miller looked good uh, when he was out on the field on Tuesday. Uh, Even Duke Johnson's back out there. so Yeah, he got out there for the first time on Tuesday, I believe, also. I mean, the offense looks like they're, uh, let me not find some wood here, but they're relatively (laughs) healthy. I got some
1: right here. Let me go ahead and knock on it for you. (laughs) I know on Saturday night, um, the the Texans did have one long drive with uh, Deshaun Watson was in there. You know, if they can do that more consistently with their main starters throughout the season, and then you have Duke Johnson in there to catch passes for you. You've got some depth at tight end. If if Darren Fells makes the team or one of the others, you know, if they go with three tight ends, you've got uh, Akins and Thomas. That's only going to help the defense as much as anything in uh, keeping them off the field, and then hopefully the offense scoring more points. So it is good to see. There, there are some good points for the Texans' offense. It's going to be about offense this year because,
0: uh, you know, the defense. If if Clowney is not ready to go by game one, or he's not playing, or he's traded, or whatever. I mean, there there's two out of three uh, things that could happen that are bad. He, he doesn't. He decides he's not going to play, or he gets dealt you know, actually three out of four, or he's not in shape for the first, you know, two, three weeks of the season. So, and and we're talking about NFL shape. He might be working out, but it's probably a a huge difference of, you know, and we saw, you know, we didn't, he didn't do much last preseason and he didn't look good early in the year. So, I mean, if you're, if you're the, if you're the Texans, um, your, your, your offense is what you're going to, you might have to be relying on because without Clowney, uh, you know, J.J. Watt's all right, but he's not the old J.J. Watt. And the cornerbacks are still a, kind of a question mark. And, I mean, there's there's a pass rush that I don't know is going to be there because there wasn't a huge pass rush last year. It was either J.J. Watt or bust last year. And, you know, without Clowney, you know, and, and Whitney Merciless, what's left in the tank? He 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 had a good moment in the preseason game, but I, I don't know if the ones were really out there for the Lions. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm curious to see what they can do if, if Clowney is not ready or, you
1: know, if Clowney's not out there. Well, the one thing I think we did here last week is that uh, they are going to try to move Whitney Merciless around a little bit more this season, which they really didn't last year. And apparently he was dealing with a bit of an injury last season because he, he certainly was not the Whitney Merciless that we'd come to know and love from years before. So if he can get back to full strength, and play like the Whitney Merciless we've known from a couple of years ago, that will at least help, especially if Jadevian Clowney's not out there. And quit, quit, quit putting him in coverage. He's terrible at it. Yeah, he is terrible. He he
0: needs to rush the passer. That's what he needs to do. You know, just a memo to Romeo. If he's on the field, he's rushing the passer, or forget about it. Quit being cute and tricky, and we're going to do this and that, because every time he... He's he's in coverage. It, it's not good. And you there's just, no point. You're not fooling. It. The only person you're fooling is yourself. Cause you're making, you know, you're making your situation so much harder because he's worthless out there. He's worthless. In well, coverage.
1: Yeah. And especially if Clowney is out, you've, you've got to play to Whitney's strengths. You've got to ru- have him rush the passer because the Texans, you know, without that, then that's just going to put even more pressure on the defensive back. So yeah, you've got to have Whitney rush the passer. All right, uh, one thing I didn't get to in the post-game show cuz it was it was
0: kind of breaking it as we were putting it together is the 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 death of Cedric Benson. Uh, you live in Austin, you follow the Horns pretty
1: pretty religiously. What about the said Benson uh career and passing? Well, it it certainly caught a lot of us by surprise here in Austin over the weekend. He uh, passed away. It was following a motorcycle accident. He was the second-leading all-time school rusher behind uh, Heisman winner Ricky Williams, and he played eight seasons in the NFL, of course, uh, played with the Bengals and the Bears. He was from Midland, Lee, so he's a Texas boy. Austin American statesman columnist Kirk Bowles, who was a frequent guest on a sports talk show that I hosted here in Austin many years ago, he called Benson honest to a fault. Now, he did have some run-ins with law and some other off-field problems when he was at Texas and beyond that, but he was definitely one of the greatest football players that UT ever had. He was only 36 years old, and it just, yeah, it just just really shocking. And he did live life on the edge. I mean, I can see him with the fast cars and the motorcycle bit. And unfortunately, there was a passenger on the motorcycle with him uh, who also died. I believe she was uh, in her late 20s. She had just gotten her doctorate. She was going to be an audiologist. So it was a female. I can't think of her name offhand, but... Yeah, very shocking to hear about Cedric Benson. If you're talking
0: about UT running backs, not post-UT, not in high school, as legends, as the the best of the best, I mean, he's in the top three, right? He's right there. That would be it.
1: Yeah, his NFL career wasn't, you know, certainly as as shiny as, say, an Earl Campbell or, you know, someone like that, but... If you're talking high school and college, certainly at, at, at UT, he was one of the best running backs UT ever had. You put him with Earl and Ricky Williams, basically. He's in that conversation. I would I would probably put him third behind those two in all around. But, yeah, he's definitely up there.
0: You know, very quietly this week, America lost uh, one of the great early voices of sports and one of the true poets and wordsmiths. Jack Whitaker died at age 95. You know, what a career this guy had. I don't know who has paid attention to to Jack Whitaker's passing this weekend, but I I want to bring it up because I mean this guy called the very first Super Bowl on television. Uh, he called Secretariat's Triple Crown victory at the Belmont, the Masters, several Olympics, Major League Baseball. He was the original original host of the NFL Today on CBS. This was also a man who was wounded on Omaha Beach during the Normandy invasion. Here's a little bit of a piece narrated by brent musburger and i know a lot of you guys haven't heard maybe of jack whitaker if you're young or maybe you forgot you know how good he was so you're gonna to get to hear him a little bit in this in this little piece that musburger did on his life and in it you'll also hear the voices of legendary golfer gary player and monday night football's frank gifford
2: jack whitaker's unique take on the world was first heard over the radio in pennsylvania 1947 he made his television debut three years later, and in 1961, his network career began at CBS. Comfortable and so capable as a host, reporter, and play-by-play man, he covered many memorable events. None more inspiring, in his estimation, than Big Red's run at the 1973 Belmont Stakes.
3: He's had the roses, the daisies, the carnations. He'll get anything he wants now. Acrosses Withers, 31 lengths is the official margin of victory by Secretariat.
2: In 1982, Whitaker broadened his horizons when he joined ABC's wide world of sports and added Olympic stories to his repertoire. There
3: it is! He did it 10, the gold medal! The, the gold, gold medal. medal goes to Mary Lou Retton. Oh. His role as a broadcaster certainly was, was one of versatility. We had the triple crown, we had golf, we had the Olympics, and Jack became an integral player in all those events for us. Canada! Canada, you are a hat trick, a grand slam home run, and I think we ought to keep meeting like this for many more years to come.
2: Jim. He was more poet than a reporter, with the human condition his beat and the written word his instrument. My memory of his essays is pretty simple. Oh my God, I wish I could write like that.
3: Nobody designed this golf course. Nobody with a pencil and two million dollars and five bulldozers. This was made by nature. It comes out of the ground. It was done with wind and rain and sun and the help of a few sheep. And so, while to most Americans and other people, it's not love at first sight at St. Andrews, St. Andrews' old course is like a dry martini, an acquired taste. And as such, it remains with you forever. I always have great admiration for people like William Buckley, Winston Churchill, and Jack Whittaker for the great command of the English language. Pegasus has disappeared somewhere into the mist. Sports were his subject, but his
2: objective was to convey and evoke emotion.
3: New faces crowd on the scene. The ice maidens and the figure skaters are here. The often volcanic Alberto Tombo has arrived, and so has Wayne Gretzky and the enforcers of the NHL. Will they go gentle into these last days of Nagano? Well, if so, these games will be remembered not for the weather, not for the controversies, but for the best reason of all, the athletes. And they will be remembered with a smile and a bow.
2: With the utmost respect and gratitude, the American Sportscasters Association Hall of Fame inducted Jack Whitaker in 1997.
3: I just thought Jack was one of the classy people that I've known in my broadcasting career, and I think he elevated the entire profession just by his presence. I know that a Kentucky Derby without an essay from Jack Whitaker would be like a day without sunshine or a mint julep without bourbon. Here's Jack. Ah, thank you, Jim, very much. Everything that's done
2: now on TV in anything, in any sport, he would be the pioneer of that. He was the way that we should all still be doing what we do in television sports because he did it the right way.
3: Jack Whitaker leaves a legacy of journalistic television excellence. And I can only hope that future commentators in decades and eons to come Look at Jack Whitaker as the ultimate journalist, and study him as among the greatest storytellers
0: that was ever doing sports television. That last voice was Doug Wilson, who was a director and producer at ABC Sports for forty years, four decades. Stephen, you remember Jack
1: Whitaker? I certainly do, and I'll tell you what: there's not too many. There aren't too many people I know, too many sportscasters I know, that would be put in the same breath as uh, William Buckley and Winston Churchill. But, yeah. like, what, what I appreciate about Jack Whitaker and other sportscasters like him is that he can do so many different sports and do them well. I mean, he can not just do football. He can do golf, the Olympics, horse racing, and, and do it all just flawlessly. And it's it's people—we're we're losing our great voices, the, the great pioneers— that made sports television what it is today. And Jack Whitaker is certainly one of those.
0: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, we just lost uh, Dick Enberg a couple of years ago and Keith Jackson recently. And, you know, guys that uh, are not gone, but are no longer doing the games anymore. Vin Scully, uh, Vern Lundquist isn't doing football anymore. He's, you know, cut back drastically, kind of semi-retired at this point. Uh, You know, you look at... uh, I mean, I mean, it's been a few years, I know, but uh, some of the other great voices um, that 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 aren't here that just to me defined my youth, but also kind of gave you that sort of connection. I mean, I, I miss those guys that kind of brought you back to the legends of the past. You know, the kind of connected you to the the legends of the early years of sports, and who seem to have Stephen. I want to call it a character in their delivery and a timber and their voice that you don't hear today. There was just something deeper and more meaningful, and it just seems like there's a, a cookie-cutterness, I guess, if that's a word to, to what I hear from a lot of the guys today.
1: Well, that's probably true. Their voices are distinctive, and Pat Summerall is another one I think of. You know, he's been gone for quite a while. He's a voice that when you hear it, you know exactly who it is. When you hear a Jack Whitaker, when you hear a Howard Cosell from many decades ago, uh, Harry Callas, Avin uh, Scully, you know right away who that voice is. And a lot of the voices you hear today, you have to stop and think, okay, who is that? What's his name again? And you, just because, as you said, it it's become a totally different type of entertainment. I, I almost think it's more entertainment than it is covering sports, the way sports television and sports media in general is these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, maybe it's just grumpy old guy type stuff, but you know, it's just, it, it, it's not the same for me at all. I, I tell you what, I, I was watching a preview and this is, this is sort of off of sports, but, you know, speaking of, of, uh, sort of that connection to the past, uh, there's a, a PBS documentary coming up by Ken Burns. And of course, uh, all of you guys remember the Ken Burns, all the listeners, I'm sure remember Ken Burns, great documentary on Major League Baseball, or you've seen it. Oh, they al- yeah. They're always rerunning it on the MLB Network. And I hope if you if you weren't around when it when it aired originally or you were too young to remember that you've seen it since then, but it's just an incredible documentary. And I'm just such a fan of Ken Burns, and they're going to do one uh, in, in, in about a month that's uh, starting up on the history of country music. It's going to be, I think, 18 hours. Oh, I definitely want to see that. I'm a big country music fan, so I'll be watching that. We're in Houston. I mean, this is the heart. So I know this is the right place to be talking about You know, Houston sports fans, I'm sure with, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the ones that they're going to be talking about, you know, over the years, uh, they've all been out at the rodeo, it seems like at one point or another, Uh, and and they've all come through, you you know, Willie Nelson before, you know, he went to Nashville and became a superstar, was cutting his teeth here in Houston front, you know, Texas guy and George, George Strait, some of the, you know, the bigger names, of course, but. I mean, I just I start, I just watched a little bit of the preview on PBS and just was all excited about that because um, I, I like a lot of different kinds of music. But, you know, certainly grew up with country music, you know, growing up here. My dad listened to that. You know, that, that was all he would listen to on the radio when I was growing up. So, you know, you, you, you do You know, I guess maybe I could have rebelled against it. But Stephen, I kind of was like, yeah, I, I grew to like it. And of course, you know, going out to the rodeo all the time. I mean, that that's a big part. That played a big part, too. Yeah,
1: and of course, you know, Gilly's Nightclub was a big thing back back in the day, too. So a lot of those stars came through there. So, yeah, that should be interesting to see and, and, and a lot of uh, great musical heritage in Houston as well as sports. I want to remind people before we finish up, if you enjoy the show and, and you want to support us,
0: you can now go to the website, HoustonSportsTalk.net. That's our main website. Uh, if you're doing a search for us, there's a Podomatic website where – they host all of our podcasts, but our main site is Houstonsportstalk.net. You can make a small donation over there. There's a donate button on the top right of the homepage or towards the bottom of the page. If you're on your smartphone and you know, just a couple of bucks by each of you who've been a regular, maybe over the years would help us with some of the expenses of the show. I mean, I don't like doing this, Stephen, but I've been doing this for six years and you know, you, you put a lot into this and you know, I, I, it would help me a little bit if if maybe somebody could give like a a cup of coffee worth of you know, of their dollars that may have enjoyed us over the last few years, and and hopefully we've brought some some of that enjoyment to you guys, and and you guys can figure out that this is this just doesn't uh, it's not super easy just
1: to, to just snap and, and and do this type of thing. I work on it, and, and Steven does as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's something you enjoy and you want to support it. We certainly appreciate it. We we do it because we love it and because we want to bring you great content. But absolutely, if you can help us out at all with that, we'd love to have you aboard. Well, that's all we got. But we're going to
0: come at you with our postgame show, Texans-Cowboys, in, in just a few days. You're, you're going to be ready for
1: that one. You couldn't make this this last week, but you'll be ready for that? I'll be ready for that. The, the most anticipated, meaningless game of the preseason, Texans-Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hopefully, there's a couple of we'll have a couple of fist fights to talk about in the parking lot or something like that. That's usual Texans Cowboys. It wouldn't
1: be normal if there weren't, right? (laughs) Oh man!
0: Just remember what what was that what was that first game that the Texans played the Cowboys? What was the final score of that? You remember?
1: The first game? Oh, the in the Texans' history? Oh yeah, seventeen to ten. I think was it seventeen? I thought it was nineteen to ten. It might have been nineteen to ten. I know it was was ten. The Cowboys scored. Yeah, I think it was nineteen to ten. It was in two thousand two. Yeah, it was nineteen to ten. David Carr actually threw a touchdown pass in that game. <laughs> yeah, to Billy Miller. Yeah, I yep. do remember that game. Yep, that was that was a fun game to watch, and it all looked gold
0: right there. And then it, you know, it just it it hasn't quite reached those heights, but you know, they've they've at least been winning divisions recently, so you can at least say, well, we've at least sniffed the playoffs. There's teams out there that that haven't over the last few years. So,
1: can you believe that's been almost seventeen years ago already? That's crazy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's nuts. Wow. It's, it's been, yeah, so exactly. 17, it's 2002. So, yeah, 17 years ago. Well, that's all we got for this one. Uh, we'll talk to you guys again real soon. Thanks a lot for listening. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.